you know, prior to the pandemic, we did it because we didn't care if we made any money that day. We just wanted to make sure that like we did the thing that the city needs. We did the thing that the community needs. And if the city is going to be cooler, then it needs a fucking tiki bar. Or if the city is going to be cooler, it needs to have a vermouth bar or it needs to have a Thai restaurant or it needs to have an Indian restaurant or another burger restaurant or whatever. But in, since the pandemic hit, it became a grind. And now we're just slogging through. You're listening to one of Indianapolis's great restaurateurs and entrepreneurs, Ed Rudisell talking about the plight of independent restaurants during COVID and what we can learn from it on an intense episode of Michael Loves Indy. Friends, welcome back to Michael Loves Indy. This episode is the most intense episode yet that I've recorded. It's a conversation with Ed Rudisell, one of Indianapolis's best-known, most admired restaurateurs and entrepreneurs. Ed is known for starting many restaurants, including Siam Square, Black Market, Rook, The Inferno Room, and others. He is not like any person you'll ever meet. He is uh, fiercely independent. He is covered in tattoos. He says what he thinks. He doesn't care what other people think, and that's something that I, I really admire about him. Um, I'm always up for an interesting conversation with Ed when I get to see him. Um, Ed was willing to have me over to his house on the south suburbs of Indianapolis and have a long conversation about his own struggles the past 15 months during COVID, and his struggles are really a microcosm for the struggles of independent restaurants nationwide. And we lost too many restaurants in Indianapolis and nationwide. Um, As a result of COVID, Ed decided to close two of his beloved restaurants, uh, Black Market and Rook. He talks about that. He also provides a lot of ideas on how we can help independent restaurants get through these next several months and make sure that this never happens again. He is a fascinating guy, and we get into many of his interests. He plays multiple musical interest, uh, instruments, and he is a fanatic of jazz and of various uh, heavy metal genres. He's got two podcasts, which I highly recommend, Shift Drink, which uh, in which he interviews um, artisan uh, cocktail producers from around the country, in some cases from around the world, so that's Shift Drink, and the uh, newly launched A440 podcast where he interviews some of his favorite musicians, especially independent metal musicians. I think in this conversation, you'll learn a lot about independent restaurants, the state, local, and national policy failures, and what we can learn from them. But I think most important, you'll be inspired to go out and help the restaurants that have really made a difference in your neighborhood. So I hope you enjoy this very intense, but hopefully entertaining and informative conversation with Ed Rudisell. I think I learned more about restaurants from your blog post back in like 2013 or 14. Oh yeah. <laughs> then, then, so you, you know, you, you put it all out there and you've been doing this for a while and you know, like Indie Monthly wrote pieces and things like that just about you. You're somebody who's fine kind of just putting it all out there about what it's like to run one of these businesses and 
I think, I don't know, I think it's, you do it on your shift drink yeah. uh, podcast, which I listen to and things like that. Thanks, I appreciate that. No, I mean, and, and it's, and, and I think, uh, I think the thing I wanted to, to get into was you have made people aware of a sector of the economy that I think a lot of us just, just thought, oh, you just, you just wind it up and it works. Right. You know what I mean? Independent restaurants. And yet I think a lot of, a lot of people are going to be thinking differently, but it's not been without a huge cost. Yeah. I mean, I hope that, you know, people are starting to see that it's not so easy. You know, unfortunately, um, I think that we just lived through the golden age of farm to table dining. Um, and, and I know that people have been kind of poo-pooing me a lot over the last year um, during the pandemic, you know, because I've been this naysayer and all that. But, you know, a lot of the things that I was talking about in March of 2020, um, about the mass closures that we were going to see in restaurants by the you know end of the year, all of those things have come to fruition, and and I'm not happy about that. But I'm a realist, and I know that you know we, I'm a business owner. I know the stories that we tell, and I know that the stories are what the numbers say. And you know, I was just kind of seeing this situation, you know, as the pandemic started, where, you know, everybody was trying to keep in good spirits and you know reassure their guests. I guess is what, you know, it wasn't anything out of malice or um, trying to obscure the facts or anything like that. It was just trying to reassure their guests like, hey, you don't need to panic. We're still going to be here for you. Um, But it got to a point where I was just starting to see so many social media posts of like, you know, we're going to come out of this stronger than ever. You know, this is a great time for us to study how to do this. We're going to learn new techniques and this and that. But as the time went on, you know, um, it got more and more desperate yep. and that was the horrifying part of that and so um one of my friends um, that i've become actually very close with over the uh last several well last five years or so um actually my podcast shift drink was in large part inspired by his podcast called the speakeasy and it's out of new york city uh his name's southern Teague, and, and southern and i were chatting one day and uh he and i both suffered from depression and um you know, we were just talking about how that story wasn't really being told and just kind of made just not really, I wouldn't say a commitment, but an agreement that if the media came calling that, you know, we would, we would answer it and tell what's actually going on. And at the time, of course, there weren't stories to talk about the new menu or the new cocktails or the new, uh, this or the rum that I'm into at the moment. The only story that could be told at that time was that we were all crashing and burning and we desperately needed help. And that story wasn't being told because we just didn't have a voice. So I want to, for people who don't know you, I think a lot of people listening do know you, but for a lot of people who don't know you, I do want to ask you to spend a minute on um, your background as an entrepreneur because important to understanding, I want to I wanna get into in this conversation how people listening can support independent restaurants, like yeah. support their favorite restaurants, but support the sector. And there's... There's something like when I met you many years ago, there's there's something when you talk about the public value of like this independent restaurant sector and you were talking about I hope we haven't seen the you know, the golden age. It's like you've you've since I've known you, you've always been driven by this fanatical belief that 
good food should be accessible to everybody. And that's something that, you know, you, you, you come into neighborhoods that are kind of coming back. You make sure that it's priced to that. Like literally any Mm -hmm. person can, can access that. And I've never asked you before, kind of where did that like ethos come from? Well, I think a lot of that comes from just the age that we all kind of came up. So I'm 45 years old or soon to be 45 years old now. And, you know, when I say the golden age of farm to table, I mean, obviously we've had really great, uh, golden eras of restaurants, you know, French fine dining and all of these things. But as far as the farm to table and accessibility kind of movement, we really can to peg that right around 2010. And that's nationwide, even craft cocktail bars. You know, when you go back to the opening, I mean, I kind of say, uh, despite there being numerous other places that never went away, um, there's always kind of been, you know, bars and restaurants that have just never gone away and have been always doing the right thing. But the, what we're seeing in the industry now I think that, you know, as far as in the bar industry, that really started with like PDT in New York, the the speakeasy trend that now every bar, like when uh, a city gets their first craft cocktail bar, more often than not, it's going to be kind of that speakeasy vibe. And, you know, that really kind of, uh, it it didn't start with PDT, but they certainly popularized it. Um, And like the hidden door, you had to go through the phone booth at Crypt Dogs and, you know, go through. And so, um, and, and with restaurants, you know, as we really back up and look at you know when that really started changing it was about 2009 2010 where you started seeing chefs um coming of age Uh, you know we were and and let me clarify i am not a chef and i you know i I get called chef sometimes by people that aren't aware of my background but i'm not i work with amazing chefs and have always made it a point to work with just people that i absolutely would uh, love to work with for the rest of my life but I'm not, <laughs> not a chef. I can cook really well as long as you're at my home. If 300 of you come in, you're going to see how poorly I can actually execute that. But um, so if we kind of think about 2010s really when the, the floodgates opened. And in Indianapolis, you know, black market, uh, we opened in 2010, tail end of 2010. Um, Bluebeard opened shortly thereafter, I think like about a year, year and a half later, Milk Tooth, about a year after that. And so these restaurants that we all think of as like kind of being um, the apex of what Indianapolis uh, has put on the map and what we have to put forth, you know, that really started happening around 2010. Pandemic hit in 2020, that's an even 10 years. And we very often see um, these kind of movements happen in decade chunks and there was already a feeling that there was a, a, a correction coming because too many people were opening places and it is a tough business. It's a business. It's not a fun job. Uh, I, I mean, I take that back. It's a fun job, but it's a challenging career because we have very small margins. And so it got to the point where um, people that just didn't know any better started throwing money at, at chefs saying, Hey, let's open a restaurant together. And it was just cutting, uh, you know, we're a medium sized market. You know, we're not New York, we're not San Francisco, we're not Chicago. We just kept taking that pie and cutting it to smaller and smaller and smaller pieces where it was already getting to be difficult. And then the pandemic hit. And so what we expected, a market correction that would happen over the course of four or five years, happened in the course of six months. And that's how we ended up where we are today. Um, Anyhow, that's, I guess, going back to my interest in like accessibility, I think it's just, it's our generation, you know, of like, I remember uh, Tony Maws um, from Boston saying, making a comment when he won a James Beard Award about a decade ago, saying, you know, that um, 
at the end of the day, we're t-shirt and jeans people. We just happen to like, you know, caviar and foie gras. I, yeah. I'm paraphrasing, but yeah. I mean, that's it, what it came down to is that we all enjoy these really great uh, kind of meals as well. And um, you don't have to go to, you know, a thousand dollar restaurant or you shouldn't have to go to a thousand dollar restaurant to, to be able to enjoy something. Like I've, ne- that. I've never, I've, been, I've never asked you though. So like you have a lot of interests like music, mm-hmm. you know, musician, uh, journalism, could have pursued music or journalism as your vocation, but you didn't. There was something about... Well, at the time, it sure seemed like those were like the um, more volatile and less promising options. Nice. But after after this last year of the pandemic, right. I think maybe a career in music might have actually... Uh, might, might have been okay. Yeah. I actually, on a whim, I just remembered a, a guy that begged me to give him bass lessons when I was like probably 18 or 19, he was a year or two younger than me and uh good kid man really good kid and i didn't want to go give him the lessons he because i didn't feel that i was really qualified to do that I, I still don't really feel qualified to do that and uh i'm just not an educator and and he just kept asking 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 so finally i gave him a few and it just kind of after like maybe four or five it dropped off and you know he did his thing but um i ran into him at the chatterbox maybe about eh, probably about 10 years ago, something like that. I walked in and uh, I just heard my name yelled and I, I couldn't figure out where the hell it was coming from. I looked back towards the band and they were still playing and I couldn't figure out where it was coming from. I see the bass player waving at me and it was that dude. His name was uh, Kyle Kegris. And um, so he's like, I'll come over after we get a break. And so we got to bullshit for a little while. And I don't know why I was just thinking about him last night. I think I was thinking about exactly what you just asked about. Like I, I on a very different uh, kind of plane of existence. I, I could have been, you know, that professional jazz musician. And I, yeah. I, I, I was just kind of wondering what he did with it, you know, how it ended up. And it looks like he's really killing it out there. Like he's, cool. he's looks like he's based out of Nashville, you know, recording artists still doing it for a living. So it's pretty, pretty fantastic. You know, it's certainly uh, something that I look at and like, well, I guess I could have done that, but, but you, you know, some, something about, I'm assuming something about being your own boss, owning your own business, hospitality clicked at some point. Hospitality for sure. Um, the entrepreneurial spirit, I wouldn't say is something that um, was ingrained in me from a young age. Um, my parents are both, you know, of the, of the generation where you take a job and you work that job until you can retire from that job. And if you're really young, like my dad was, he started his job at 18. So after 30 years, he was still only in his 40s and he started a second career and he retired from there just last year. Um, he never was much... Um, he was never keen on the idea of not having a steady paycheck and that really scared him. Um, even for, there was about a year there when he sold cars and, and it really freaked him out and he ended up quitting that because he, he needed to have that reassurance of that steady paycheck. And so it wasn't something that I really thought about. Um, now Thai people on the other hand, and my wife is Thai, everyone in Thailand wants to own their own business. Everyone. I've never met a single Thai person that doesn't want to own their own thing. And so once I got married, that was really the kick in the ass was, you know, to, uh, you know, my wife was really pushing, we should open our own place. And I was already working in hospitality at the time. So like I said, that part, yes. Um, but I was getting burned out. I was working in chain restaurants. I worked, I was a manager for Buffalo Wild Wings for pretty much a decade, uh, between Greenwood downtown and, uh, Plainfield. And, um, the best, came, best thing that came out of that is my business partner at the Inferno Room. He actually, he and I uh, worked together back in 97, 98, 99, and 
and we still work together. So it's been yeah. 20, 20 some odd years, but yeah, the, the kind of getting started and, and, uh, opening our own place definitely came from, from my wife kind of pushing that. Um, but it really took that kind of, um, that trend that I already talked about there that like kind of pushed a farm to table. You, if you think about the, like the late aughts, uh, top chef coming onto TV, you started seeing the food network start being less goofy. Um, and then it became more goofy again, you know, right? The, the days bef- in between. Um, but, you know, when you when Emerald, before he was, bam, you know, when he had his own quiet cooking show and, um, you know, there was a lot of real seriousness about it. And then, you know, of course, you know, you, Top Chef was a really big introduction to me as far as like, this industry can be a lot more than what I've been doing with it. And it was, for me, it was lack of uh, experience and access. You know, I certainly have had friends that have been doing this for much longer than I have um, because they just kind of grew up in a different environment and they had been exposed to those kinds of restaurants. Like Peter George, I mean, he opened a restaurant in 1985. That was not even on my radar. Like, that wasn't on my parents' radar. My family would never eat at a place that cost that much money. So it wasn't a kind of thing that we kind of grew up with. And so it, for us, it was really that, that kind of that building wave, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I guess... I'm, I'm, it brings to mind that that quote uh, from the '60s of Hunter Thompson in, in *Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas*, when he talked about that beautiful crest, and you know, and hitting, hitting the uh, hitting the coast and the, and receding. And I think we're seeing the re- recession now. And no, because uh, for in for, literal terms, but for, you know, for people for people who don't know you, so and the I think the the sequence goes something like Siam Square, Black Market, Rook, and I know there are other businesses too, uh, Inferno Room, of course, but then. Yes. Thunderbird, your investor in Thunderbird. Right. And so yeah. we opened Siam Square in 2008, um, literally two weeks after Lehman Brothers failed. Couldn't have been a worse time. But, you know, once you spend most of the year building a place, when you're ready to open and then a bank <laughs> fails and the, and the whole world economy crashes, you don't really have much of a choice. We couldn't put it off. Um, then we opened Black Market. and. I can't remember if we opened in 2010, 11. It was right at the end of 10, I guess. Because, um, again, it was a project that we worked on for a while. Rook opened a few years later. Um, and then, yes, I, at the same time Rook opened, uh, I was invited by Joshua Gonzalez at Thunderbird. And um, there's another business partner there named John Altman, who's a real estate developer. Yep. And, and John John and I had known each other because he had uh, previously been one of my landlords. And so um, that's how I got involved in that project was through John and Josh uh, Josh was, uh, you know, at Black Market having a cocktail and lunch, you know, a couple days a week. So got to know him really well. Um, that was during his time while working for Neil Brown at Pizzology. Yep. Uh, and then, yeah, the Inferno Room was born out of uh, born out of Black Market, really. It's almost like a spinoff. You know, it's kind of a lot, large part of what we were doing with the cocktail program. And it just it, it didn't fit. We were just doing what we like to do. And it didn't make sense to be serving tiki drinks and, you know, the tropical vibe with the food that we were preparing. But uh, that's how it kind of became its own thing. And again, with a great business partner like Chris, um, you know, it, it that's what enabled us to get it open. Yeah. Well, and I don't I don't want to dwell. I, I, I listen to Shift Drink. I definitely encourage people if they haven't listened to it. Um, it's a national show obviously it's become really popular it's so crazy, congratulations man. it's it is so yeah. weird dude so i i mean like literally the whole show is born out of like uh well so like i said i was listening to the speakeasy right and um a lot of their episodes back then and, and it's got to be the i think it is 100 percent the the longest running 
spirits cocktail bartender focused podcast in the country. I mean, it's been on for something like 15 years. It damn near goes back to the very beginning of craft cocktails. Yeah. Well before anybody was considering it. Um, so I'm five years into shifting now. This is our fifth year. And it was just born out of uh, me and, and uh, my old co-host, Arthur Black, uh, bullshitting on a patio in Miami Beach and just saying, like, you know, I love listening to all those podcasts, but they're also New York-centric, and I don't know who a lot of those people are. Yeah. You know, the, it's just – and there was also this kind of sense of uh, the civic pride for, you know, uh, right. Indiana. And, and it's like I think it's easy to forget if you're living in a, a major metropolitan area like uh, Seattle or San Francisco or Chicago or New York – or you know, even international Paris or anything like that, to remember that those same kind of uh, producers that, that make all those beautiful spirits or the brand ambassadors and the winemakers, they all come and visit our market too. It's just easy to forget that the world yeah. doesn't revolve around New York City. And so that was uh, something that we wanted to highlight was that, you know, of course, you know, we have really fantastic people coming through and hanging out with us too. And in some cases uh, have become very, very good friends, much better than in their home markets. And, and, and so and you were insistent uh, before the pandemic on doing as many, almost all the interviews in person, right? All so of you're, them. so it's like, you're going to, you're going, I mean, to like Miami and New York and San Francisco, you're like this Indianapolis heavy metal guy showing up and it's like, here I am. You know I mean? That, yeah. So that was always usually based around something that we were already doing. Um, I'm yeah. very much a pragmatist and I'm yeah, like, yeah. Uh, I, very careful about money um and i'm nowadays i'm really glad that that's the case because you know that's the only reason that siam squared and, and the inferno room is still there because chris and i are very very careful about watching uh, where everything goes but the um it was always based around like going to a rum festival or you know a tiki fest or um you know when we went to new york a couple years ago it was for the launch of a uh, velier which is an italian brand uh, that's a long story that we can't get into but it's, um, you know, this, yeah. So we just started traveling and thought it would be cool. And everything was done in person. It definitely made it tricky. Um, but we were insistent that everything had to be done in person and you get a better interview when you're doing For it in sure. person. But yeah, the pandemic changed that right off the bat. I mean, we couldn't be in front of anyone and we had to kind of, I had to learn how to record quality audio or yeah. as good, as good as we can get anyway. Zoom does not record quality audio, but everybody has it. So it's, I mean, it works because it, you don't have to ask anybody to download some weird, you know, piece of audio software right. and wear special headphones or anything. You know, everyone's got it and it works. And it has certainly opened a lot of doors that were closed previously. Um, you know, I just did an interview with someone in France a couple of weeks ago. I've got one lined up with someone in Australia here in a few weeks. And so those sorts of uh, things were something that were impossible um, previously. But, yeah. you know, it's. I guess if there's one good thing that came out of it, it's that. <laughs> well, so so I was super honored to be on the show. Uh, it was like 18 months ago, and I remember talking about because it was. I know it was more of a free flowing conversation as the show is, but it was basically like, what can you know communities, even political officials, do to right. encourage the the restaurant you know owner the entrepreneur because the the right. st- one of the cent- the central premise and this still remains this still remains true actually and that is um a restaurant even though it's a volatile business so now i'm talking as if i was talking to like 2019 is <laughs> right. is is a a neighborhood or a community's oftentimes their best bet to for placemaking or to create a certain you know 
um, impression of a neighborhood or even to turn, you know, to turn the momentum of a right. neighborhood. And a lot of neighborhoods, yeah, the first businesses that you see to pop open are very yeah. often restaurants, coffee shops, because when the rent's low, that it it's, creates a lower barrier to entry right. um, for those of us that don't have a lot of, you know, expendable. And again, you know, going back to, to how much it costs to, you know, run restaurants in the slim margins, you know, investors are not beating down the doors to invest in restaurants. Certainly not now. There was a period there in the, you know, mid teens where that was the case when, you know, everybody just got caught up in it. But, you know, because it's such a risky investment, you know, you're pretty much, uh, it's sweat equity. What can you build, uh, with your own two hands and how many family members can loan you a thousand dollars. And so, yeah, it's, the, the premise of that interview and the reason I wanted to have you on was be, I think we titled the show uh, Economic Development Through Restaurants or right. something of that nature. And and basically, I feel like an idiot now for <laughs> for for not um, of for course, not foreseeing a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> but it's no, it's like the the um, you're not in Washington. It's not right, your fault. They right. should have known better. The the um, the vulnerability of that whole sector, you know, and and again, I do I don't yeah. want you, you and. I don't want to get, I, you've done so many interviews and I don't want to just pile on, you know, for, for indie monthly and major media outlets about all the challenges. Sure. And, and I, and I do, I do, I think this is a unique opportunity to ask you to talk about what could a way forward look like that where the whole community was supporting the independent restaurant owners. But, um, but I do want to get into, cause you have some, you have some different takes on the failures of the past year specifically yeah. like what we could learn from them, you know, and I don't yeah, want to, and I think that's probably the best way to look at it because, you know, I was just asked by a guest a couple of days ago, uh, when I was kind of on this, uh, rant, I, it wasn't really a rant, but you know, just kind of airing somebody asked how, Oh, it looks, it looks like you guys are doing great here. You know, finally everything's back to normal. And you know, that cuts deep. And I don't think people realize how bad that hurts because things are far from back to normal. And I'm not even talking about just uh, with the pandemic and the spread of the virus. I mean, we're still seeing high death rates. We're still seeing increased infection rates, all these things. I'm not going to get into the politics, the vaccinations and all that. Uh, just get vaccinated. But the uh, no doubt the but it comes down to like, you know, what we're experiencing on the inside. And he had asked me, so what, what's the message that I should be spreading for you? And I didn't really have an answer um, because. I, and I think maybe that that is the answer is to make sure that it doesn't happen again. It, it's too late for me. You know, black market's gone. It's not coming back. Um, and, and Rook's gone. It's not coming back. And I think the, 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 the problem is, is that people are so detached from what happens in hospitality and small businesses. But even small business owners are very detached from what happens in hospitality. Um, is that, you know, I can't tell you how many times I was asked if black market was going to reopen when this is all done if Rook was going to reopen when this was all done. Like, no, we closed. We liquidated everything. We had owed $100,000 to our landlords. Like, ha no, well, we didn't have the money to pay that back. They, they, they claimed everything that we owned. Yeah. All of our furniture's gone, our equipment's gone, all of our inventory's gone, the alcohol, everything that was in there, they literally, we walked out and they took everything. So, um, you know, it's, I think the perception is, oh, are you going to be able to just lock the doors for three or four months and then come back? And that's just not the reality of the situation. And so, yeah, I think some of the failings, you know, they do come twofold. I do think about this a lot. Um, you know, in the beginning, we were certainly scapegoated um, as being these kind of super spreader sites. And while I don't disagree that, you know, 
uh, dance clubs shouldn't be open at three o'clock in the morning or two o'clock in the morning and, and, you know, Los Angeles or, you know, things like that. But when you are looking at local restaurants and limiting our capacity where we're already spaced out, you know, very few restaurants are putting people, you know, an inch away from each other, things like that. Um, there just weren't a lot of like realistic considerations um, put forth. And so every time numbers went up, we closed. Every time numbers went up more, we were restricted more heavily. They went up again, we got a curfew. And then everybody just forgot about it. Like those curfews just stayed enacted. Nobody f- realized that they hadn't been lifted. And people would come in and be shocked when at 1130 at the Inferno Room, we say, you know, last call. I'm like, what? I'm like, yeah, we have to have you out of here by midnight or we violate the mandate. And by doing so, we can risk our business license, our liquor license, and fines. And we certainly weren't in a situation to be able to risk any of those things. And those, some of those um, mandates and restrictions for restaurants and, and hospitality, um, they stayed out there literally until just a few weeks ago. And people yep. d- had just forgotten about it because, you know, when you're stuck at home and you're inside your four walls, you've become bored. And you just want to get out of the house. And when you're finally able to do that again, you don't think about the people on the other side of that, that we've worked every single day for over a year with no days off. Like, I think I just told you before the interview, like this is my first day off that I've had since March 17th, 2020. And each one of those days is a minimum of 10 hours. More often than not, they're 14 hours. And we have to have a mask on the whole time because again, if we don't, we're in risk of violating mandates. It's not that we want to, we don't want to take them off in front of customers anyway. You know, we're obviously we're trying to promote the public health of, of our city as much as we can, but it gets hot and yeah. hard to breathe when you're in a kitchen with smoke pouring up in your face and you've got a mask on and, you know, there's people, and this is just, you know, a, an example, but, you know, people come out, they haven't been out in a restaurant for a while. They come in, they sit in the dining room. They might be the only table. Very often they are because we still are definitely not back to, you know, normal flow. And honestly, we wouldn't be able to handle it if we were. But and then they finish their meal and then they sit there for two and a half hours and chit chat with no mask on. And, you know, we're stuck and we're suffocating. That's not bringing any additional revenue into us. Um, and we certainly want to take care of those guests. You know, I don't want to sound like, you know, the, the, the guests uh, are our enemy but there are just, um, it's a combination of, I guess, ignorance of what's happening inside the restaurant industry and uh, being inconsiderate. People not thinking about what, what's happening in our lives and what we've been through over the last 13, 14 months. Speaking, speaking of ignorance, um, I, I have been shocked to understand through talking to you and, other, and others um, the sheer numbers of people who have just left the service industry never to come back, like the the right. the, the the challenges just to get people. So that's yeah, the second back. fold, right? The first yeah. one was that we were abandoned by the government. Um, there were no real um, solutions. And you and, said P- um, PPP was just a band aid. Maybe bought some people. Some well, it time, did, but, right? So yeah. like it was. I don't think people realize how that worked, um, and that it was really a failure for restaurants. Um, it was to be used on labor only, um, and there were a lot of mistakes made. Um, First off, labor is not the largest cost. It's not even close. It's not even really something that we concentrate that hardcore on in restaurants. I mean, I, I don't want to say that we don't concentrate on it, but most restaurants are running um, anywhere between 20 to 28% labor, depending on if it's a fast casual, fast food, or, or upscale place. But, you know, overhead is where, you know, our costs are. And we have got to have guests in, and we have to turn tables and turn them and turn them and turn them and turn them and work as fast as humanly possible in hot conditions to be able to make 
a 7% margin. And I think that's the other part that a lot of people don't realize that, you know, seven to eight percent is the common margin. That's if you're doing everything well. And that's why there's a high failure rate, because if you're not doing things well or you don't really know how to run a business, um, it can go down the toilet really, really quickly. Um, insurance companies, we pay thousands. In fact, at the time that we closed, I'm sorry, that, that the pandemic hit. So in March of 2020, um, at that time, between our four restaurants, uh, we were paying, oh, gosh, I think we were paying approximately to the tune of about $9,000 a month in insurance premiums. And one of those things that we pay for is called business interruption insurance, uh, which covers us in case, you know, uh, a car crashes through the dining room or the city cuts through a water line and, you know, we go at it or um, any number of things where it interrupts the business. So it pays out all the salaries of the people that work there. It pays out the salaries uh, for the, um, owners to be able to work and in addition to all your costs covers your rent all these things after 2004 all of the um commercial insurance industry got hit really hard with claims from the SARS outbreak and after that they started slipping in some very ambiguous language um and I say ambiguous because that's a key point of what I'm doing right now is working with a grassroots organization to um, kind of pry open some of the holes in that. But uh, there's language that was inserted into our policies that said they would not pay out for epidemics or pandemics. And so not a single penny was returned to any small businesses, no restaurants, nothing. They denied every single claim. So if, in my opinion, and again, I'm not a policymaker. I've never been uh, in government or anything of that nature. I'm not a lobbyist. But what seems like it would have been a really easy solution um, is... Because one of the things that we kept hearing is that it's very difficult to get the money into the right hands, right? How do we make sure that the money gets into the people that need it? Well, we all have a policy because it's required. You can't open a business without business insurance. So since we all have a policy, why the Fed would, didn't force those companies to pay out and then just bail out the insurance companies instead of trying to bail out millions of small businesses, take the, the, the five or six major insurers force them to pay out. They all know how to find us. They have our addresses, our policy numbers, everything pay that out and then bail them out because the commercial insurance industry is sitting on eight and a half billion dollars of cash reserves at the moment, at the moment they're sitting on eight and a half bill. That's a seven and a half, eight, eight and a half, sorry, eight and a half billion dollars of cash reserves. They're sitting on at the moment. It's estimated by thirst group. Again, this is who I'm working with. Thirstgroup.org. Um, so, in, by the way, uh, insurance is regulated on the state level. So this is not something that can happen nationally because every state is, is a, it's a patchwork of 50 different. Well, I mean, if you include D.C., you got 51, Puerto Rico, 52. You start adding in all the territories. You've got all these other kind of regulatory bodies. Um, and so we don't have one big lobbyist group that's really representing everyone, which is why we have to work with an organization like Thirst that's kind of like got ahead of the beast, but it's still a grassroots organization. If they had paid out all of the claims for the three months of the civil order. I'm not talking about people that chose to close longer because it wasn't in their best interest or things like that. Um, the civil order where we were forced to close between March and June, three and a half billion dollars would have covered it. Every single restaurant in the country, all of them, three and a half billion dollars. They'd still have five billion in reserves and every single one of our claims was denied. That's where 
you know, I want to see forward action. That's why, that where I'm working with lobbyists and I'm working with Thirst Group. But again, that's a long-term play and we're living day to day. Right. You know, that, that, okay, so we maybe, we might see a class action suit in the next five, six years and it'll get peeled to death. By the time I'm 75, maybe I'll get a check for 75 cents. But, you know, I think that they need to realize that, you know, in a lot of ways, the way that the system has been set up, especially with uh, publicly traded companies and the rewards and, you know, looking at, uh, not only stock prices, but dividends and all these things that we look at as economic indicators of how well the economy is doing. Yeah. You know, there was a lot of artificial inflation of those numbers during 2020 um, so that everything looked good. And those PPP loans that you asked about were a large part of that. You know, we were the, the restrictions on them said that we could borrow and they could be potentially forgivable if you use them for a very specific set of requirements, but primarily they were used for payroll, right? It was called the Paytech Protection Program. Um, so again, going back to what I said, That's not right. it's 20 to 28% of what our costs are anyway. And then they told us we had eight weeks, I believe, eight weeks or 12 weeks to spend it all, or you were not gonna be eligible for forgiveness. So we brought everybody back, even though there was no job, right? We had to start paying people. And in one case, the Inferno room, we were paying people just to come back up and like just clean just to help deep clean the place because there was no job we weren't open we couldn't be open because the civil order was still in place and so we were paying people to just stand there we brought back full staffs um you know and we certainly didn't need a full staff at black market or rook or anything like that we had to we brought all these people back they're on their full salary so that we can spend the money as we have been dictated to do so that it can be forgivable at the end and then we hope at the end of that road that there's something different to come along and help that's why I keep calling those for that first round of PVP a bridge to nowhere because there was nothing really coming at the end. They backed off of it towards the end, I guess about halfway through that uh, 12 week period or eight week period, whatever it was. Um, they said, Oh, well we realize that's not enough time to pay them back. We're yeah. going to extend it to 180 days or 120 days, 120, sorry, 120 days. But at that point the money was gone. I couldn't get it back. We'd already yeah. spent it. And so at that point, you know, um, you know, the money was gone. What do you do? And so we saw a mass, a round of mass closures. So, I mean, that was like kind of the first step of the problems. And that's where I, you know, I've been very vocal in the media over the last year about that. But now we're starting to see a shift and a whole new set of problems that I don't think anybody foresaw. So the labor force being one, right? There are people there. I think that's the biggest there was a, one. Yeah. There was a whole, there's a whole segment of our communities who made their livelihoods working in restaurants and a significant percentage of them have just moved on to do something else. Is that? Well, why wouldn't they? Yeah. You know, they, they, we closed. Uh, we laid off so many people in March. You know, it was an overnight situation. Um, I, I remember the text messages coming in from my employees when it started to get bad. I believe Bluebeard announced that they were closing um, on March 16th or 17th. It was, uh, and I started getting text messages from my employees. Are we going to open? I'm not comfortable going in. This is scary. What are we going to do? Uh, I got with the with, you know, management and we decided within an hour to just we were going to call it. We were closing dine in everywhere across the board. And um, two hours later, the governor announced that everything had to anyway. So we we preceded it only by a few hours. Um, but it, some of those places haven't reopened yet, you know, and we barely you know, we we were closed for three months when we reopened. There was really no income not not much to speak of we're doing seven hundred dollars a day and in best case scenario we were doing anywhere between two and seven hundred dollars a day in sales our labor was eight or nine hundred dollars you know um when you add in 
costs for overhead, utilities, all those things. Every day that, that our restaurants were open, and again, I'm grouping them all four of them together, but every day that the four of them were open, we were losing $1,500 every day. So in the course of a week, it adds up really quickly. When you take that out, out three months, yeah. you can see how fast you can burn through. And we burnt through a hundred grand at black market. We burnt through $75,000 at Rook in three months, just burned it. It's gone. And so, you know, yes, some of that was forgivable, but what did it get us? I mean, we still closed at the end of the day, we weren't saved. Yeah. Those, those, uh, programs weren't really thought out. They were trying to kind of come up with a blanket solution where we really needed more of a bespoke, uh, solution that's particularly for hospitality. Um, but again, you know, and also this is again, it's, it's, uh, you've got my head spinning a little bit because it's like, it's not, this is what you're talking about. It isn't a solution, at least in America is, is likely to come from the right or the left. Right. Because, because, um, a lot of the, I'm imagining a lot of the national chains could absorb the hit. It's almost like, absolutely. It's it's almost like it's a, a solution, a solution tailored to a, a local independent well, and, and as we saw, and people may remember this from looking uh, at the uh, media at the time, but um, large corporations, and I'm talking about publicly traded multinational corporations, will not behave unless you force them to behave. And so when we saw the PPP loans go out, how many times did we see huge corporations like Applebee's taking $40 million? And we knew it was a limited amount of money. They said in the beginning, we've allocated X amount of dollars, and I don't remember what it was now, but we've allocated this, and when it's out, it's out, and we can't borrow anymore. So that's why there was a mad rush to sign up. It was just like uh, Obamacare, right? Like the first day, everything crashed. Nobody could get on. None of the banks knew what the regulations were. They were literally changing day by day. Our banker had a meeting at two o'clock in the morning yeah. the night before everything rolled out. Um, yeah. And then it didn't roll out the next day because the government dropped the ball. We, we set up our own portal for very small businesses that were going to, couldn't get PPP. We went through the same, yeah, totally same experience. Right. And, and, and I think about, okay, so I'm going to pivot for a second. You know, if people are listening to this saying, you're good, I know I'm like vomiting, just everything. No, this is my great. Head, and, I'm, <laughs> and I, and I, and I feel bad cause I'm, I'm trying, I don't want to, yeah, and I would strongly encourage people to read um, your Indianapolis monthly interview and all things because you also you're you're somebody you just put it all out there in terms of the psychology of what the entrepreneur goes through. And I hate to I hope I'm not like I, I feel bad for asking because I don't want to make you like relive that again. No, but I mean I think it's, you know it's it's something that I've come to terms with because I, you know I. <laughs> I don't want to be a voice of the industry. I don't want to speak for people that had, didn't ask me to speak for them. Because, yeah. But I just know that because of my podcast, I've got friends all over the world right. and all over the country. And I know that no one's immune to this. It doesn't matter what the market is, how big it is, how small it is, or if it's a fine dining restaurant, if they've got Michelin stars, or if it's just a local watering hole dive bar. Nobody was immune to this. And we got yep. hit. And the vulnerabilities were laid bare immediately. You know, again, with that, that kind of seven to eight percent margin, um, that's just something that most of us have spent our life in hospitality. That's something that we've dealt with. Yep. You know, we did. We didn't realize, I guess, of course, we realized that most other businesses um, are a little bit easier. We know the failure rates of restaurants and all that. But there wasn't an, uh, an article that came out uh, on Medium in the very beginning, and it was entitled um, Why Restaurants Are Fucked. And so they weren't pulling punches even from the headline. Right. And I read through that and they made... Um, they cited five examples of other industries and what the uh, typical, you know, 
margins are in, the, in those industries, the profit margins. And I mean, my jaw hit the floor. I couldn't believe like banks were like 18 to 20%, stuff like that. And like there's, the government has no issue bailing them out. And so it was very quickly apparent that there wasn't help coming. And that's why I guess I wanted that to that message to get out in the beginning. I wanted people to understand that people aren't helping us because the government did a very, very good job of patting themselves on the back and, you know, saying, hey, look, we we got unemployment numbers, you know, are, are down because everybody's right. back to work. But they were only get back to work because we were paying them borrowed right. money. We borrowed money yeah. from the government, brought people back to work to stand around and do nothing. The numbers looked good temporarily and Wall Street got a boost from it. But at the end of the day, we all knew that the clock was ticking, that in 60 right. days, that money runs up. And so, the, again, I don't want to speak for everybody out there, but I know that it has become a situation. So I've come to terms with like having to relive this just because I'm 45. I don't anticipate I will ever do this again. Not after what I've been through in the last year. I don't think I'll open another restaurant. I don't want the people that are out there thinking about doing it or the ones that are still have a shot to make it through. I don't want them to have to go through yep. what we've been going through and it's not done. Believe me, like there's still a lot of paperwork and there's still a lot of money owed that so, we borrowed to stay alive. And so I, I will, I, I will ask you cause this is, cause again, you, you have, it's both, you have a, you're willing to, you're willing to go a lot deeper than most people will in terms of this is what it's really like. And, and I think, so I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to push back on something you said originally, okay. which is like, I don't, which is kind of like, I don't know what the answer is. I'm going to, I want to do this exercise. So if like, I'm a like locally, like a mayor or even like a state rep, if you were going to put, so if you were assume the following, if you were going to say, um, independent restaurants took a disproportionate hit and there's, we recognize a value. Cause I mean, look, let's be honest, right? very few chain restaurants are going to come into a neighborhood that needs some love and redevelop the abandoned church sure. or the hundred year old. Right. So, so those you're working with, you're working with all those kinds of assumptions and the money doesn't stay in the neighborhood. True. Right. So, so if you're going to say that we're going to, and, and let's, let's assume if, if it's for, for a certain a sense of realism that there's a focus on helping the existing businesses rebound. Okay. So you've got Siam square, you've got inferno room point. I, I hear what you're saying about your reticence to open another restaurant again. Um, so closing loopholes on insurance is something that people, you would urge people to look at, right? In terms that of, was a big one. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that wouldn't have, it wouldn't have been the savior but it certainly would have put us all in a much different boat. Because, yep. I mean, you know, three months closed, you know, and, and I, I hesitate to um, mention, you know, sales numbers. Because I think the sales numbers don't really tell the picture, yeah. right? You know, when people hear that, uh, you know, a restaurant sells $100,000 a month in sales. That sounds like a really big number. And that's over a million dollars a year. But I think the part of it that, that's misleading is that those are sales. That doesn't account that 20% of that money or 25% of that money goes to pay the employees. Yeah. Um, another 25% of it goes to pay your food costs. Yeah. You know, you've got your liquor costs. So, right. you know, you're looking at another 20% there. Right. Um, you've got your insurance costs. You've got your utilities. You've got your rent. Right. 10% of your costs. So I'm like, it's not hard to see how those numbers shrink very, very, very quickly. Um, and the, which is why, you know, you see presumably very successful restaurants go out of business all the time. Yeah. People see busyness and they think, that, oh my gosh, they must be doing so well. But, you know, I can open up a, 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 a kiosk in the mall and sell 25 cent hamburgers and be busy. 
Right. But it doesn't mean I'm making any money. Right. In or fact, building I'm a business. Losing money. Right. right? You know. Right. But it, but the perception would be like, oh my gosh, that's the most popular place in the whole in the whole right. area. And so that's why it doesn't really tell the picture. And so, you know, when you're looking at a business that's got you know a hundred thousand dollars in sales in a month, you know the it would have helped to have the insurance industry pay us out. But you know, even still, that would have been three months. Yeah. And we didn't get any reprieve on rent. So I know that that was something that was talked about a lot um, for particularly in Indianapolis, you know, about people getting evicted when they shouldn't have been allowed to, um, you know, but what I didn't see addressed was that businesses were in the same boat. And so the, at the end of the day, um, I don't want to say that our rent was the nail in the coffin, but it certainly drove the nail halfway in um, because it didn't stop. The clock didn't stop. And I'm, and, yeah. and I'm not trying to shit on my landlords. I, I honestly, they're all great people, but you know, they're small business owners too. I, right. I don't, I don't rent from a big multinational property group. I rent from guys that are out there building the city. I rent from Craig Von Dalen and Todd Von Dalen. They're out there busting their ass to make the city cool too. They live here too. They want it to be cool too. So I'm not at all attacking them. They've got a business to run. And if, if they've got 25 tenants like me right. that aren't paying our $10,000 a month in rent, I would, I guess 10, right. it wasn't 10, eight. In the case of Rook, we're right around $8,000 a month in rent. So if we're not paying that for four months, that's a lot of revenue. And then they've that's got right. bankers that want to see, you know, that have given them the loans. They want to see well, where's your income coming from? Why are we still going to underwrite right. this loan? And so it's certainly, you know, something that I think local government could have taken a look at to see if there was a way to provide some sort of relief and that avenue. I don't think that there is any one blanket solution that could have saved us. I think that what would have been very helpful um, for us would have been A, rent, B, hands and expertise, because what it came down to is uh, we had to lay off our entire staff everywhere. We There was no business. It dried up literally overnight. Yep. But none of the paperwork did. And not only did the paperwork not dry up, but all of a sudden we had to become amateur grant writers. Right. We had to just be I, I always, you know, kind of joke that I feel like restaurateurs are now like the equivalent of like standing out on the sidewalk with a tin cup. We're just kind of asking like, hey, are you with the chamber? Can you give us a thousand dollars? Hey, are you with the Fed? Can you give us ten thousand dollars? And you're just constantly begging for money. And none of us want to be in that boat. You know, restaurant people and hospitality workers are some of the hardest working people in the country. And we don't bitch about it. We don't complain about it. It hurts our bodies. Yeah. We're all on antidepressants and all these things. And we do this to make sure that people have a good time when they go out and they have a good meal. But, you know, when we all of a sudden had to, you know, pivot became the hot word of 2020, right? Um, and there were some major issues with the pivoting. One was that we had to figure out how, how do we run our businesses with 10% of the staff that we used to have, which really means that all the owners and managers are now doing everything. So in my case, I'm serving, I'm taking orders, I'm answering the phone, I'm helping to cook, I'm bagging to go orders because now we're primarily carry out um, or during, that's now, but you know, when this all hit, we were carry out. On top of that, I have to try to figure out how can I get two and a half hours to do a teleconference on Zoom to hear uh, one of our US senators or representatives talk about what the PPP is going to do, how it's going to work, how to apply for it, who's eligible, who's not eligible. And honestly, I was incredibly lucky 
And the reason that Siam Square and the Inferno Room are open today is because Chris Coy, my business partner, when we closed up shop being a bar, you know, we didn't do a lot of carry out. And so we closed for three months flat out, just like Rook and Black Market. Chris did every single seminar. He was online and did all of them. And then after he did them, he came over and he disseminated that information to me. If that hadn't happened, none of us would wow. be here. Like, and so I think about all those people that didn't. You know, the small mom and pop where you think about, a, you know, a local taco sh- shop that, you know, that it's, it's the owner and her husband and maybe a kid or a couple of workers. You got five people to work there. Who's going to sit there for two and a half hours in the middle of their lunch no to one. listen to a senator talk about that? And so yeah. what, having um, and this is a lot like what you guys do, right? I mean, the chamber was as, as helpful as you guys could have been. And we did we did twenty one and a half million in small loans and grants, but we knew it was just buying right. time. We and knew, it was we knew, it was a drop in the bucket. It I was mean, it was. But we did get approved, and believe me, it helped. Okay, and I don't want, good. I good. don't want to like, you know, look to gift horse in the mouth, but you know, a thousand dollars, and we were talking about you know that not even covering labor for the day, it doesn't go far. And right. so I think the perception from the public was that it we got bailed out. And that's not what no, happened. No. And so, uh, you know, ha- having some sort of like um, administration, having ha- having help with the office work and yep. the admin stuff is what would have been thing. Yeah. helped so much because again, we're not grant writers, we're not office people. Most of us haven't been in an office, if at all, in twenty twenty five years, other yep. than our own offices, which is very niche. And so, that was a huge time commitment, and it's still very confusing because even when you do the seminars, you're effectively having a politician tell you. Well, here in subsection 4A, uh, section 3, you see here that a non-profiting entity of the type, and you're like, whoa, hold on, you've already lost me. Go back, and you know you have to do that while you're worrying about the phone ringing, yep. the food that's coming up, and so that would have been incredibly helpful. The rent would have been incredibly helpful. The insurance would have been incredibly helpful. That's why I said there wasn't a blanket solution, but I think all of these little things that we could have chipped away at the stone and not just for restaurants, that's just my experience, but the same thing applies across the board for, you know, a lot of small businesses. So how could, how could we on the labor supply issue going forward? Because, so here's like one of the things I'm going to think differently about, essential workers, healthcare right. workers, right. service workers. And what I didn't realize, I mean, there's such a disproportionate percentage of the service workers pre COVID who are also artists and creatives too, sure. you know, right. right. And so. And that's one of the big benefits of the industry, right? It's flexible huge. hours. You don't have to work the nine to five, you know, you can request days off in the middle of the week. Uh, and you know, those sorts of things certainly attract the creative types and especially in the kind of neighborhoods that we're in, you know, mass Ave and, and fountain square and Fletcher plays going to graduate school, whatever. Sure. Yeah. And so if you, you, you've, you've pointed to a labor supply, literal emergency. It what, really is right now. What can communities do? And I mean, I may- don't know. Okay. <laughs> I mean, the, 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 that's the really, and that's where that guy kind of caught me with my pants down when he asked me that last week. Like, you know, what's the message we need to get out there? And I'm like, I'm not sure that there's an answer because th- there's a lot of problems in the hospitality industry. Um, low wages, um, lack of benefits. And again, with the margins, it's, you know, you're looking at these 7% margins. I can barely afford to pay myself. And, and a lot of times I don't pay myself. In fact, uh, in the last year and a half of black market, I didn't 
pay myself, you know, to make sure that my staff could make the salaries that they needed to be able to live and raise their families. And so there's a lot of failings in the way that the system has kind of been set up in the United States, um, you know, with that, you know, tips, lack of insurance, lack of access to, you know, uh, all sorts of services. And so it's such an overwhelming undertaking that I don't know where you start, yep. I, you know, like, because if just take a step back and put yourself into the shoes of a 22 year old that has an apartment downtown. And it's been a while since I've had an apartment downtown. I have moved out of the city to kind of be away from work. Um, but you know, uh, you say you're look paying $800 a month, which sounds to me like would be a hell of a deal to live downtown, but let's say you're paying $800 a month plus utilities. So you got what, $1,100 a month, probably all set in. If you have a car, you're going to add a little bit more. If you don't, then you have to worry about your, you know, um, bus, Ubers, other public transportation. Um, so you've got a job in February of 2020 and you've just suffered through two really shitty months. And the reason you did is because winter is terrible for restaurants, particularly January, right? So everybody spends all their money on credit cards in December and this happens every year in retail as well, which is why, you know, they call it Black Friday, right? They, you know, retail stores really only make money in November, December. That's when they get into the black. They're red 10 months a year. Um, and so restaurants, we are just dying to get past those first few months of the year. So you've come out of two of the worst months of the year but everybody expects that, but you're dying for March, right? Because you start to get um, convention traffic coming back in. Uh, the weather turns, people are out walking, enjoying themselves, they're dropping in and sales start to go back up. And so your money starts to go back up. Um, and then that rug is pulled out from underneath you. So your place just closed. They've said till the end of the month, but we all knew better. So then it's April, then it's maybe Easter, then it's May. Then it's the end of May. Yep. Then it's June. And so how long do you wait to go back to that job when you already have been hearing the rumblings of they're not going to allow you to go back inside? Yep. Um, and in addition, as just anecdotally, and again, this is anecdotally from a lot of people. Actually, there's a woman that owns a coffee shop not far from here, just about a half mile from here. Um, actually, she's put it out on Twitter, so I'll just uh, I'll, I'll call it out. It's Strange Brew. It's down here on the okay. south side. Um, she's been... Uh, uh, very active on Twitter, making these comments, Joan of Darknets. Uh, I think everybody would in downtown Indy, probably if you've been around for long enough, we would remember Joan of Dark and, uh, yeah. right. Exactly. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Right. So probably people listening to your show know exactly who I'm talking about. Yep. Right. But I mean like people, a year of lockdown and people's homes have turned them into assholes or brought out the inner asshole. And you know, you can only have people acting like that to you so many times a day before it just really ruins your day. And so that's where you start to get all of the other after effects, right? Depression, anxiety, burnout. You know, you're already tired. You're putting in 14 hours a day. You're not getting tipped with the shit. You're leaving with less money than you would have prior to the pandemic. Yep. You've been treated like shit all day. And then you weren't, you know, you made nothing for it. Right. So why would you come back to that? Why would you come back to the industry? I wouldn't. You know, I don't fault anybody for that. But... You know, I, I, especially in the beginning, right? When nobody knew how long this was going to last, why wouldn't you go learn a new skill, right? We saw a lot of people baking bread and right. doing all these home projects. Like I learned how to work on my own cars, things like that during the pandemic. But, you know, um, 
what a lot of people did that weren't kind of lifers in the hospitality industry like myself, um, they went and got new skills, right? right? They did online certification programs. So we've had people, uh, in fact, uh, I've got an employee at the moment that I may be losing this week. He's worked through the whole pandemic. He's family now. Anybody that's worked with a, through a global pandemic like this together, I mean, you're, you're family and he always will be family now. But he's been now certified in, in, in uh, writing code and I, I don't know exactly what he's done. I didn't get too deep into it because honestly, it's depressing to think about his departure. Yep. But he had an interview today. And so, you know, everybody went out and sharpened their skills to get out, to get yep. out of this industry because if this happens again or it continues, where the trajectory that we're on, it's not going to get better and there's not going to be any money. And so they, they left because they had every reason to leave. And again, going back to what I said about a half hour ago is that it was an already kind of thin labor pool. There was already too many restaurants. And again, not speaking just about the Indianapolis market. I mean, across the board, this kind of golden age of, of farm to table dining, just, we just had this explosion of restaurants and not enough people to work in them. And so that was already coming. And then this just kind of uh, was the final straw. I mean, it broke the camel's back and people left and they aren't coming back. And I'm not sure that there's a real solution to that, which your question was, how do we fix that? I don't know because job programs, training, those sorts of things aren't fixing the issue. People want benefits. That's another big one right now, right? I mean, you could have, and many people did die from this, right? I had a good friend of mine die right. two weeks ago right. um, over from St. Elmo, you know? And, and so people have died from this. I've had family and friends lose loved ones. Or I've lost loved ones. And, like, y- you need to have health care. I mean, if, yeah. if, if any of us on staff, if anybody would have gotten sick and died on my staff, we would have closed. There's no, absolutely no way that I could have continued on knowing that I was unable to provide adequate health care for anyone and, and, and let someone get sick and die. Yeah. And, and so, you know, everything is such a mess with all of these things kind of intertwined and tangled up. I, I don't know what that solution is. So that's why we look to guys like yeah, you right. that spent your career in economic development to kind of like start right. to chip away at the things that have the most impact. And this is, and this is one of those, the, the so many cracks in the foundation right. were exposed and this is one of them. And I'm yeah. sorry that like your industry was like, you know, um, one of the hardest hit one thing, this is just a side note, but I think people find this interesting. So I thought perhaps mistakenly that Helen and I were really supporting you over the past year. Cause we get Siam square delivered about once a week, you know, for us, <laughs> big, but, but you were, but this, I think I'm this is you said delivery. Yeah. yeah. Right. Cause, cause I, and, and we don't deliver. So, so, Right. You're saying that if you want, so if, if people are listening to this and they're like, and they're inspired, they're like, I want to, I want to help my favorite independent restaurants rebound. You're saying you're not necessarily the, 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 the deal terms of the food delivery services are not, I mean, you're, you probably, you're, you're saying you're probably better off to just go pick it up yourself if you want to give them that so margin. This is, this has definitely been a thorn in my side and I've been very outspoken yeah. and I don't pull punches on this. Those food delivery services are a bane to the industry, and they will they will play a large part in the downfall of independent restaurants um, post pandemic. They are predatory. Uh, you can Google Grubhub, uh, New York. I don't know what keywords look for, like Grubhub, New York, phone call charges, fraudulent charges. They were, there was a guy even in New York. So just to give you an example of how shady these industries are, or these companies are, Grubhub got sued because. Um, so when 
a call is was this doesn't happen supposedly any longer. Um, this gentleman noticed all these extraneous charges. Um, I guess you know what? Let's back up because I you like you said you didn't realize that this was happening at all. Let's just outright Grubhub, DoorDash, Uber Eats, Seamless, which Seamless is that's a fun one because they present themselves as being a separate company, but they are not. They are actually owned by Grubhub. That's intentional. Grubhub started to get such a bad reputation that they started buying smaller companies and not bringing them fully under the Grubhub moniker so that people wouldn't realize that, oh, I hate Grubhub. Let's order from Seamless instead, realizing they're getting the exact same thing. And so it's very, very uh, dishonest business practices. And they charge restaurants anywhere. Um, if you were a McDonald's, I don't know what they get. You know, the chains, the, and don't feel bad. You know, if you're ordering from McDonald's, uh, and you want delivery for some fast food, don't feel bad about that. They've able, been able to command amazing pricing. It's the difference between going over to Wildwood Market and getting some produce and going to Sam's Club and getting some produce. You know, one of those companies has, you know, a stock, uh, a stock, what the hell am I thinking? Stock symbol. Yeah. <laughs> like one of those companies has a stock symbol and the other one doesn't. Yeah. But they also can, because of that reason, can command big big cuts on, on inventory. Yep. And so they can, of course, they pass that along to you. And so McDonald's and all that, I have no idea what they pay, but I can tell you on the independent restaurant side, I've heard numbers anywhere as low as, even though I don't know personally anyone that is being only charged this, I've heard numbers as low as 15%. I personally don't know anybody that's paying under 25. The, the numbers now are 30 so anybody signing up from 2019 going forward, the number has been 30%. So that means for every $10 that you spend at Siam Square or you spend at uh, Kuma's or whatever, for every burger you buy, $3 go to the company that delivered it, not to the driver. That doesn't go to the driver and it doesn't go to the restaurant. It just goes to them. So if there's an issue with an order, something, but somebody wants a refund or they're not happy with it, um, you can, if you can even get through their system, through their chats or their telephone numbers, which they make that, you know, very difficult, even harder to get through than your doctor. Uh, but if you can get through and ask for that refund, they'll be happy to give it to you because they pull it back out of the restaurant's account. So if their driver showed up two and a half hours later, never showed up at all. And that happens a lot too. Um, or sometimes we, and I'm not kidding. We've heard of, and I don't know of anything personally through hours. I've heard of drivers just taking a box out of the food and having lunch. Yeah. And, they refund the order, but it doesn't come out of their own take. It comes out of our take. And in addition to that, um, if there is a mistake and that we can dispute it and get it paid back on our end, they still take their 30% cut. They still take, even if in all best case scenario. So but you can't afford to not, but you basically, because, because that's the market, you pretty much have to. So here's my take to, on right? it. And because people do ask me all the time, why, why, why do you even do it? Because if you're a seven to eight profit, or seven to eight uh, profit margins, percent on the profit margins, and they're taking 30, you know, it's a losing you know, yep. situation. And people ask, why do you do it? Well, we're now 14 months into a global shutdown. Yeah. We couldn't afford to have, you know, people's dining habits change over that period of time, right? It doesn't, it, they say it takes 30 to 60 days to form a new habit. So you say you order from us all the time. So if we didn't utilize those services, you live much closer to other Thai restaurants. So those Thai restaurants, they picked up the gauntlet because they were willing, right? 
and uh, and I'm not going to call anybody out on their business practices, but I mean, not everybody follows the letter of the law when it comes to, you know, paying taxes correctly yep. and all those sorts of things. And so uh, I know that's shock, right? No, not everybody pays their taxes correctly in the United <laughs> but, States. But for people, for but people, I'm so anal about like yeah. accounting. I, I and so, but if we allow you to form that new habit, so for 14 months now, you've gotten used to eating food, same dishes, similar dishes that you've been eating from us. But now you're used to eating them from the place that's a mile away from you. Right. So when this does all end, hypothetically someday. Are you going to continue to go? Are you going to snap back to where you used to eat two years ago? Yeah. Or are you just going to continue to eat where you have been? And so that's where you kind of get extorted yeah. into partnering with them. And, and they didn't know that. And that's why they come at us. Like so that. I'm going to, um, and, and you've been really kind with your time, but I'm gonna, so I'm going to try to ask you some <laughs> kind of quick hit questions. Sure, because yeah, let's do the it. People, the people, um, a lot of people listening to this are going are gonna, to are gonna know you. They want to know how to support you. So That's right. They're going to know why it took so long to get all this recorded. <laughs> no, no. So, so, so. Um, uh, this is the uh, edited version, by the way. The real one was actually seven and a half hours. That's right. <laughs> it was a retreat. Um, so, um, obviously... There's the, we want, I want them, we want them to think about the, the value of the independent restaurant, all the capital stays in your community. Oftentimes it all, all that capital stays in your neighborhood. You know, it's a tough business. Now, to the extent that people are ordering carry out, it's worth it to make the extra effort. Just go pick it up. Right. Cause then the, cause then your favorite restaurant keeps the, keeps the, the, so the margin, right? It's an yeah. easy answer. Right. And so, and this is, and I've noticed it's definitely becoming a generational thing and I'll keep this answer very quick. People are becoming less and less inclined to talk to humans. And we've seen this across the board. We know this from social media. Uh, everybody's very willing to text. Nobody wants to phone or you know phone up anybody anymore. Uh, nobody leaves voicemails, all that. This is no surprise. But because of this reason, and the DoorDash, Grubhub, Uber Eats, all of them, they know that. And so that's why you can actually place your order on those apps and then still come pick it up. You can still come pick it up. So nothing different than if you would have called me to get your order but yet 30% of the money that would have stayed in the community now on the carry out orders. Absolutely. Absolutely. And all of that money oh, now goes to a publicly traded company so that they can continue to do whatever they do. I don't sorry. Know, exploit restaurants. So, sorry, sorry, fat Dan's. Cause I just did that. Well, again, but the, you know, this is not your fault and this is not anybody else's fault because people don't realize it. And there's a reason they don't is because these companies, the, the, these delivery companies have put a lot of money into research and focus groups to, to obscure the fact yep. of how they're wrecking people over the coals. In the beginning of the pandemic, DoorDash had this big program and, and over the Super Bowl, uh, was it DoorDash or Uber Eats that did it over the Super Bowl? Oh, it was Uber Eats that did it over the Super Bowl that uh, had the Wayne's World thing, yep. the Super Bowl commercial. We're supporting local restaurants, support local restaurants, support local restaurants. What they aren't telling you when they say, hey, because we support local, we're offering free delivery for the next 30 days or every Saturday for this month, we're going to have free delivery. What they're not telling you is that's free delivery on the, the diner's end. Yep. Nothing was free on our end. We still paid that 30%. And so they obscure their fact and they like to pat themselves in the back. They want you thinking that you're doing the right thing. So that's absolutely not your fault that you ordered fat Dan's and came and pick it up anyway. So my advice, it's very quick and easy. Just call, call the restaurant and ask what they prefer because they might have a local delivery service and we do have local delivery services um, okay. that where the terms are more favorable. Well, e even if they're not, they stay in the community. Yeah. Right. right? You right. know, and they are expensive to run. The reason that restaurants don't deliver um, for the most part 
is, and the reason that we don't deliver is because it drives your insurance liability through the roof. Yep. Through, through the roof. You you are going to pay at least an additional $3,000, if not more than that, maybe up to $5,000 because your drivers or bicyclists may get out there and get into an accident and get a hospital bill. And so, uh, you know, that's the reason for that. So it's easy. You don't even have to call to order. Call the restaurant and say, how would you guys prefer that we order? Should we call it in? Do you have an online method? Uh, you know, at the Inferno Room right now, we have uh, just launched online ordering for our food, and uh, it's all done through our point of sale system. So there's never a third party that gets a penny out of it. It all comes directly back into the restaurant so that we can survive. It's easy. If you don't know, ask the people that know, and the, nobody yep. knows better than the people that operate that restaurant. And, or- and you, you also, um, again, it's like you're y- y- the people I don't think realize the precautions taken by responsible restaurant owners. Cause you're not, you, you've been railing against government officials from day <laughs> one, but it hasn't, but yeah. it hasn't, but, but not, not in a partisan way. Right. Cause right. you're, cause you've been very much a masks, social distancing yeah. person. And, and, and again, one well, thing Well, back, back when that wasn't <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right. Back when that wasn't a divisive issue. Now that's incredibly divisive. Oh my but. God. <laughs> but, but, but you, but you've also, you've also impressed upon me and on many other people, just how obsessively these facilities are cleaned too. And, right. And right. so that's where when I said in the beginning, you know, that we kind of got scapegoated, it really did feel like we were being unfairly targeted because all of these things, like when there was a shortage of, of hand sanitizer on the market, Everybody I know in the industry and all my partners, employees, we were just shocked how filthy are people usually because, um, you know, we're, you're in my home. We, I've got a home studio here where yep. I record music. And so um, you can feel free to walk up into my kitchen here in a moment when we wrap up here and look, I've got sanitizer out in my kitchen and I would venture to say that most people do not right. um, have a sanitizer bucket in their kitchen. Uh, we keep soap and sanitizer buckets just as required by the health department in the restaurants. We keep those in my house. So, you know, in restaurants, we're inspected all the time for uh, very, very small details, things that, you know, may or may not. And a lot of times they're just kind of, um, you know, maybe not as I don't want to say not important, but superficial, you know. And, and so we really walk a tight line to make sure that everything is perfect we're clean we wash our hands constantly we're always sanitizing these are things that we do on a normal year and so to kind of be targeted as these places where you're more likely to get sick um than staying at home yeah it just didn't seem very fair at the time especially when we yeah. did and i know there's always bad actors but that didn't res- it, that didn't change by restricting right so when the curfews came in or the seating restrictions came in there were still bad actors that were just ignoring it anyhow right but you know for the most part most of us want to do the right thing we don't want to kill our guests you know it's like ozzy osbourne when he was accused of like killing or was it was it ozzy or was it uh uh, no i take that back i think it might have been um rob halford with judas priest when they during the satanic panic of the 80s right and they were like oh you know you're getting your fans to kill themselves with these backwards messages and made the comment to congress just like why in the hell would i get the people that are buying my records to kill themselves right like that's how i pay myself you know and so again we don't want to hurt anybody we don't want to make anybody sick we don't want to take shortcuts yeah and so it did feel very personal and which is why we do kind of rail against some of the policies but you're right in the beginning it wasn't um 
kind of this partisan politics. It was like we were getting screwed on both sides. We were getting screwed by capitalism to make sure that, that unemployment numbers looked cool, that the Wall Street uh, or that yeah. Wall Street bounced back. Some, and some would say crony capitalism. Yeah, yeah right. That's yeah. exactly right. right. And yeah. so that's that was really what was damaging. And I think if we can see anything come out of this, hopefully people will start to pay more attention to their community a little bit more. So that was my hope, you know, but then we just saw a chain restaurant open this week and three hour lines to get in and, you know, and then struggling restaurateurs literally in the other side of the parking lot. And, um, I say struggling. I don't know if he's struggling, but you, yeah. I mean, point being, nobody's like rolling in dough. I right. think Danny Meyer is probably okay right now. <laughs> he returned his twenty million. Speaking of is people that, right? that took PPP, yeah. So okay. when he when a lot of those big companies that are national or that are um, traded on the uh, public markets, like Shake Shack is, um, when the public list got released of who took the PPP and who was granted what, uh, I think. Uh, Danny Meyer, or, I, or maybe it was just Shake Shack, I don't know, but it was definitely, and don't get me wrong, I am not shitting on Danny Meyer. That guy is legend in fine dining, you know? Sure. I, I have got his books behind me here. Like, sure. I love yeah. that guy. But, you know, when it was called out and mentioned that he had taken $20 million of PPP loans, you know, in a publicly traded company, so you obviously had other avenues to raise money. If you are publicly traded, you have other avenues to be able to bring investors in. Hell, if I was a rich guy, I'd throw money at Danny Meyer. Everything he touches turns to gold. So he returned his, but again, when I, I talk about, you know, the, the hope of, of being able to support local and keeping the money in your community, you know, I guess that's always something that we all fantasize about. I love five guys. You know? okay, that's good. Huh? <laughs> it's close, but you yeah, know, right, I mean, right. I would, I would certainly be eating one trick pony if it were much yeah. closer to me, but you know, it's just, it's frustrating because I think there's just, uh, there's a disconnect of, you know, what it's really like behind the scenes and what we go through and how much we break our back and hurt our feet and we have surgeries and mental health medications just to put food on the plate for other people. Yeah. So, um, last couple questions. Uh, you've continued shift drink and, yeah. you know, and, and then, and then your new a four, four, a four, a four forty, a four forty. But, but so, Do you know, what, you know what a four forty is, right? No. Really? Are, you're not a musician? You're a I musician, am, yeah, right? Yeah, but... A440 is middle A. That's... that. It's a. It's 440 hertz. hertz. That's right. God, see, yeah. I just... Okay. It it's, just, it's drilled into your head. Four, four, so yeah. people that are not musicians out there, A440 is that note that you hear when an orchestra is tuning up. They're yeah. all tuning to A, right? No, it's the hertz. Yeah, see, yeah, it's, it's a, even I, hertz. And I... You know, so, so uh, Shift Drink, you're continuing to, um, you know, interview national, sometimes international... Right. I mean, like literally like cocktail artists. I mean, is that how, how, how do you describe it? So is it? anybody involved in the uh, food and beverage, primarily beverage, but we've had some chefs on. Um, it's producers of spirits. It's uh, occasionally bartenders, but it's not all inside baseball. Again, yeah. I talked back to my inspiration, you know, for the show. And I just I wanted it to appeal to people that um, just appreciate a good bourbon or a good rum or they like to go to tiki bars or um, just kind of want to see a different side of the business. Um, you know, I had Carrie Abbott on from, you know, that over uh, the pandemic, she purchased uh, Best Chocolate in Town, um, but also, you know, Friddle and I've known Carrie a long time. We brought her on and we talked a little bit about how she you know, was able to keep a small business thriving during the pandemic. So, you know, but primarily, yeah, it's it's grown a lot. Primarily, it was local in the beginning uh, five years ago when we launched in 2016. And um, we've 
we've been nominated for like Tales of the Cocktail Award for the last four years in a row, which is like the Oscars in the food and beverage world. I'm not food. And, I'm That's sorry. Great. In the beverage world, there's no food. That would that that would be the James Beard Awards. But the um, you know, so that's just it's flattering. It was some certainly nothing that it was ever a plan. It was just a point to put a spotlight on Indianapolis and the community and just the things that I'm assessed about. Yeah. You know, like it's just when you like something, you want other people to like those things too. And then A440 uh, started <laughs> more recently, but it's like when we when we were having a conversation like 10 years ago or so, and I, I'll never forget this because because it was cl- we were talking. Well, you were playing the most interesting music in Siam Square. I wish I knew it was some kind of jazz, like 70s. Oh very, yeah, it was some kind of 70s, very abstract jazz. And I remember saying, "So what are you into?" And you and you said you said bebop, not jazz, That's bebop. Right. And then you mentioned specific genres of metal. And I was, yeah. I was like, this guy's serious. So. I mean, yeah, it's, I've got very tastes. I mean, I thought I was going to spend my life as a jazz musician. Yeah. Um, that's what I trained to do. Um, uh, you know, up until my mid twenties, I, I uh, still thought that was what I was going to do. And, you know, I played a little bit. I got to play the chatterbox, uh, just sitting in with Dick Dickinson back in the day when he was still alive. Yeah. Um, Wednesday nights, I think. Wednesday nights. Yeah, that's right, right man. Yeah. I, I, Dick was great, man. I just, Nouveau did a really fantastic, um, piece when he passed away. And uh, I, I wish more people would read that. And just, I don't think most people realized who they were watching and, and what he had been through and why he was here. Yeah. I think most people don't realize what you know, Indiana Avenue was. Um, there was that really fantastic article recently. That, uh, I say recently, gosh, my memory's all blurry now. I think it's actually been a few years now, but about Indiana Avenue and how, uh, you know, kind of systemic racism really effectively erased that whole area of the city um, and turn it into the university and the hospital district over there. Um, so on this wild style, episode one wrote a piece for new America a year right. ago. That was, I listened to that. that yeah. It was pretty, uh, it's pretty brutal. I mean, you know how we, myself included. Was that, is that the article I'm talking about though? It's called the ethnic cleansing of Indiana. That Avenue. was it. It's the one that he wrote. That yeah. was wild. Oh, that's yeah. right. I couldn't remember who wrote the he article. Wrote, he wrote it for new America. Oh man. Yeah. So here we go. I'm circling back on, on your show, <laughs> right, man. That's right. fantastic. Go back yeah. to listen to episode one of Mike's uh, well, thank show. Thank you. Thank you. No, but no, it was, you know, but yeah. So, I mean, I, I definitely, when it came to jazz, I was really, I, and still am and very into like free jazz, avant-garde, but that wasn't the kind of stuff that I enjoy playing. I enjoyed like, kind of the cool jazz era, bebop, you know, we look at the guys like Dizzy Gillespie and Miles. I mean, obviously it's hard to ignore that, but like hands down Coltrane is my favorite. Um, and then like kind of his protégés like Pharaoh Sanders, like I fucking love Pharaoh Sanders, man, yep. you know? And it just, it, it, there's just some really fantastic stuff. I just watched that, that, uh, movie, uh, about Billy holiday that, that came out during the pandemic just a few months ago and fantastic. Um, Actually, almost got a tattoo, a full portrait tattoo, before I had my legs uh, completely tattooed of Billie Holiday. Um, it turned into a big argument with my then girlfriend, and so that's why I didn't end up with it on my body. But uh, so, beside the point. <laughs> but a but a four forty, then that that's just you're 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 trying to find underground artists, right? That so we really that you admire, and that's right, where yeah. we kind of. I mean, so my co-host is a gentleman named Kevin Franzen, and he works in the liquor industry as well. So he works for uh, Southern Wine and Spirits. Um, well, I guess they're Southern Glaciers now, sorry. Uh, but uh, he's not even my rep. He's never been my rep. We just know him, uh, or I know him from being around the same people. It's a small community. And uh, we've been to several concerts, I mean, more than several over the years. Um, got to see Cannibal Corpse right before, you know, the pandemic shut down. We were supposed to see, like, Mayhem in Chicago. Um, they got canceled because of the pandemic and just all sorts of things, by the way. I know you're not into like death metal, but the new Cannibal Corpse album's 
fucking great. Okay. Some of the best stuff. Like a lot of these musicians, you know, especially in the metal world, you look back at the old thrash and death metal musicians. Um, you know, those are genres that came about in the mid eighties and the late eighties, early nineties. And they were kids. Uh, you know, death angel is one of my favorite bands. And, um, I mean, like literally they were still in high school when they dropped their first album. So they just got nominated for a Grammy two years ago. And you're thinking, oh my God, these guys have got to be in their like seventies. And you look at them and you're like, wait a minute, how are they only a couple years older than me? Yeah. And you're like, oh, that's right. Cause they were like 16 when they dropped their album or possessed, you know, like literally they were 16. They had to be driven around to shows by their mother. And like, it's just, it's wild. And it's so it's, it's true. I'm, I'm, you know, a lot of it, a lot of it kind of scares me, but but <laughs> I can but but see, but that no knowing you as I do, that totally makes sense. The 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 technique and the musicianship that it takes to play jazz, yeah, I can see crosses over. Too. Well, it's certainly and, and you, you when you talk about extreme music. So you asked about a four forty. So we kind of broadened it out because we wanted to do a show that was interviewing metal musicians and. We weren't going to only do local, and we still don't have a plan to do only local. The first one was actually uh, with a friend of ours, a drummer for Broken Hope and the Atlas Moth, and named Mike Michek from uh, Chicago. The guy who is also in uh, Power Mad, which we may know from, uh, what was that Nicolas Cage movie that, uh, um, uh, why am I blanking on the director's name that did uh, Snake Eyes? Is it? A Wild at no. Heart. Um, oh yeah David um, Lynch David no. Lynch yeah yeah so like yeah, yeah Power Mad was appeared in like yeah Wild yeah. Heart and so yeah. Mike's their drummer now but um, oh cool but yeah, primarily it's Broken Hope and so like but we did a remote and we had some really major audio issues so we've been doing local uh, now we've talked to, with uh, Kyle Shaw from Obscene and um, also talked with Chris Morrison guitar player for uh, Mother of Grays but also it was with, like Bullet Wolf and and um, Harry Carey. And this, so it's, it's and this cool is, to be able to do that locally, yeah. but we definitely are going to branch out a little bit. Right now, we're just having some technical issues. I haven't had a co-host on a show for a while, but um, what I was going to say is, like, as a jazz guy that's not necessarily into the extreme or underground music, um, you know, I think people hear death metal and they're really put off. I don't know the words. I can't sing along, but that's, that's beside the point. You don't need to understand it. I love black metal. Black metal is one of my favorite uh, genres, and that's it's very intense for a lot of people it's blast beats which is just like when you're hitting the drum and the snare alternating just it's just in your face but after about a minute and this is why i always kind of liken it and people open their eyes and ears to it when i talk about black metal is like it's really the ambient of the metal world it's the atmospheric music of the metal world because after you hear the same sound in this rhythmic pattern it's just like when you're meditating doing yoga or something like that or the drum beats the drones and you get into trances and doing those things in, in shamanic uh, ceremonies it's the same deal right and yep. so it's really atmospheric it's this onslaught of noise but it's so much that it just kind of like all levels out and for me I find it <laughs> interestingly relaxing yeah um, death metal when you look at the at the vocals particularly in death metal when it's low and they call it the death growl right that yeah you know you've got to look at the voice as another instrument you know instead of like the words I think non-musicians have a tendency to think about only the lyrics Whereas musicians think about the musicianship of that or the what's that bringing to the whole picture of the, the arrangement, song. yeah. Right. And so, right, yeah. the, the vocals are really just another instrument there. You're not there necessarily. It's it's bringing another texture to the instrument, yeah. So, but beside the point. But you know, yeah, it's 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 been a fun show so far, and we're, and we're just getting and started. That's therapy for you, right? Just given everything that both you've of the had shows, to, right? Yeah. I've long said that shift drink is the reason. The reason I continue to do shift drink because believe me, I am beyond burnout, and. 
what you're seeing in front of you today or everybody out there is listening to today as somebody that has had uh, a lot of antidepressants and a lot of uh, anti-anxiety medication before you came over today because I had to prepare for this because typically I'm burnout. I'm miserable. Yep. My body hurts. And people that come into Siam Square these days and there might be people listening to this right now. They're like, that guy's an asshole. I was there last week. That guy's a total fucking asshole. And I can't dispute that anymore because this has been 15 months of 14 hour days. I'm tired. I'm tired of being yelled at. I'm tired of the stress. I'm tired of not knowing whether or not we're going to make it through another month, year, whatever. You know, we're all aging. You know, this was much easier when I was 30 and I'm 45 now. And so it takes a toll on your body and it's, you know, so my outlet is shift drink. That is my reset. You know, when I'm yeah. feeling like, why do I do this anymore? I don't understand. I've lost the passion. Uh, you know, I, I just, I don't get it. And then I sit down and I do an interview with somebody like you or, or you know, like Beach Bumberry or Southern Teague or, or whatever. And it kind of, it's, it's a reset. It's a yeah. palate cleanser. It reminds me why I bother to put in the 14 hour days, why I bother to have people insult me and yell at me and, and whatever, you know, all those things kind of wash away for that hour every week of, of either show. We're trying to get onto an alternating schedule. One week shift drink, one week, a four four. Well, one of these days I will succeed in this because I've never, I've never been, I couldn't articulate this till now. There's a reason that I want you to go on one of these trips with us to other cities and think, now I'm talking about my day job at the oh, chamber. Oh man, I wanted because, to go to the Seattle okay, trip because yeah. I love Seattle yeah. so much. But we're, we're going to make it happen, but here's why. And I, but I didn't put it to you like this before because um, you've really changed the city and you've inspired other people to go down this path. You've helped neighborhoods. You've helped, you've helped like energize these neighborhoods and bring life back into these neighborhoods and buildings that people you know kind of forgot about. And so... I hope I'm definitely, I definitely walk away from this inspired to just do more, um, for entrepreneurs in general. But I also think at some point, I hope I want to, at some point I want to expose you to a side of the community where you can kind of get more of that affirmation, you know, cause I get mm-hmm. it when you're, you know, these seven days, seven days a week, it's like, it's you can't, a feedback loop. but there's a, there's a, there's, even though, even though your industry got hit hard and unfairly, there's a there's a gratitude that's out there that I hope you can feel at some point. You know what I mean? In terms of, and I would want you to feel it's, that. It feels so alien to even think about something like that. Yeah. You know, just yeah. every day, you know, regardless of what somebody out there thinks about me. I mean, every day we wake up and it's just, it's a grind now. And I guess that's what I want people to understand out there is please be kind to anybody working in the restaurants that you're going to, because it's not been an easy year for them. It's not been an, an easy time at all and a lot of us are in in very very uh, bad situations you know as far as mental health is concerned I I mean I can't even go to the doctor I I can't take the time off because we don't have anybody to cover for me yeah and so we can't just decide to drive to the beach we don't have vacation time I can't take a week off without closing my business but if I do that then I have to figure out how to pay everybody that I just told them by the way (laughs) you're off next week because I want to be off and then you know I can't just force them to be off without paying them so you know just be kind out there, please. It goes so much further than you think. I, you know, please tip well as well to your servers. You know, you don't have to tip me well if you see me. I don't, you know, depend on that money to live. I'm trying to, you know, obviously build that into the actual business part of it. Yep. But, you know, um, being kind goes so much further. You know, you tip well, people, those servers out there will remember you. But if you're nice to them and tip well, you will become a favorite. And they'll remember you every single time you go into that place. And that's, it's just you know, that 
kind of mantra that everybody always throws back to just don't be a dick just don't yeah. do it just yeah. if you're not that don't take your bad day out on us you might have just come from a meeting where your boss screamed at you you don't have to carry that over to us once you get there no. we're just there to get you your drink we're just there to get you your plate of food you know and so again i know that my attitude's been really really shitty lately and i accept that i i I'm working on it. <laughs> I'm trying so hard. And, and right now it's just burnout is preventing me from doing that. But these kinds of things yeah. are reset. They do reset right. me and they remember or, or, or let me to remember what's happening. Because I can tell you across the board I've talked to, again, you know, I hate to belabor this point, but I, I it's not just me. I talk to guys from uh, some of my best friends actually are in New York, San Francisco, and Chicago. And um, I have yet to speak to anybody that owns a restaurant or bar in the last year that has passion about it anymore. None of us are doing this because we want to make our community better anymore. And I don't want to say it like that. I don't, I, I guess, I know let me mean. go back. We're, I, it's not the first thing in our, on our mind when we go to work today. It's a grind now, you know, prior to the pandemic, we did it because we didn't care if we made any money that day. We just wanted to make sure that like we did the thing that the city needs. We did the thing that the community needs. And if the city is going to be cooler, then it needs a fucking tiki bar. Or if the city is going to be cooler, it needs to have a vermouth bar or it needs to have a Thai restaurant or it needs to have an Indian restaurant or another burger restaurant or whatever. But in, since the pandemic hit, it became a grind. And now we're just slogging through. And it's, you know, it's affecting a lot, a lot of people. So just, you know, yeah. Try to think about that. You know, we didn't have a year of sitting at home. We we didn't have a year uh, of getting bored and and baking bread and coming up with new projects and gardening and things. We didn't. In fact, we started working more than we'd ever worked. And so, yeah. you know, that's. I guess I would just implore people to like call and ask what they can actually do. You know, how to pick up the food, what works for the restaurant the best, uh, and just remember that the pandemic isn't over for us. It's yep. not over for anybody. But it's certainly the effects of it are just being felt in the restaurant industry. The ripples are going to carry out for a lot of years, and this isn't going to snap back. Yeah. You know, my friend Souther, again, you know, he said that um, he likens it to a voyage. And you're on like the, the explorers that were coming from Europe to the new world, right? They didn't know what was going to be there. They just knew it wasn't going to be like home. And that's where we are now. Yeah. We've left old earth is what he says. You know, we, well, old earth is behind and it's gone. And we're on our way to new earth, but we don't know what that's going to look like because we hear new normal all the time. New normal, new normal, new normal. The yep. reality is that we aren't there yet. We don't know what new normal is yet because every day is something different. And so we have to pivot. We have to make changes. Uh, we have to adapt. And it's it's so challenging to do that on top of the things that we have built for a decade and yep. it's now crumbling. So, you know, just, I guess, be compassionate and realize that, you know, we're all out there trying to, to do our best and, you know, uh, not every place is going to make it through, but, you know, certainly try to support the ones that you can and within your means. I mean, we realize that we're not the only ones. I mean, it's been hard for everybody. And if you're one of those folks out there that have been laid off and you don't have money to spend to eat out, you know, don't, don't overextend yourself to try yeah. to support somebody else. Take care of yourself first. Your mental health is the most important first. Leave us to take care of everybody Absolutely. else you know that's our job in hospitality well it's a it's an inspiring conversation and i just again you when people talk to you and or read you in print they're going to get the brutal honesty <laughs> yeah right every, unfiltered every time i, I do i do really encourage people to uh, listen to shift drink and if you're into heavy metal 
um, A440, which now means Hertz, of course. <laughs> right. Well, if you listen to Shift Drink, so particularly starting in March of 2020, there are some episodes that specifically address what you and I talked about today. Okay. And so there was one that we recorded literally 48 days after lockdown. And that episode's called 48 Days Later right. with Souther Teague. Um, that one was a very important one. There was another one... Uh, with Nico Palazzi, who's a close friend of mine, and um, he's got a daughter that's beyond immunocompromised. She has a rare form of epilepsy, um, and so he's been in, he's still locked down until there are mass vaccinations. Um, he is going to be at home um, because he cannot risk the death of his seven-year-old daughter, or eight-year-old daughter. I'm not sure how old she is now. Um, and so, but Nico kind of did one, you know, I think we called it remote control with Nico Palazzi because he has to control a whole business now from the inside of his apartment. <sighs> And so, you know, those are the things that will really give you kind of a brutal, honest view of what's going on inside the bar and restaurant industry, much more brutal than what I've talked yeah. about today. Man. Well, I, 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 I wanted to have a happier interview with you. No, man. no. You know, it's like well, I do these things and I know that I end up just sounding like mopey and a doomsayer. But, you know, we only have an hour, hour and 15 minutes to talk. And then, you know the fun stuff gets kind of well, it has to push to the wayside to be able to get the message across of what's going on. Well, let's have a part two. I'm dead serious. For I sure, want man. you what about, about, um, fun stuff. <laughs> well, no, I want you to, wa- I want you to walk through introduction mm-hmm. to metal. So met like metal for the music fan. Who's not a metal fan. Oh, that would be fun. Man. Would, would you, would you walk through? I would, I would okay, do okay. that. Yeah. Okay, that'll be yeah, a part two. Yeah, that would okay. be super fun. Okay. Man. So that'd be, cause here's the thing, right? I'm fascinated. I've never, ever, ever met a, casual metal fan ever it does inspire fanaticism yeah you know well i mean i always love that uh was it the big short yeah with uh christian bale when he's just like puts on the headphones it's like you'd be shocked i think uh, the people you see at metal shows um you know accountants you go to these oh yeah you go to these underground shows and there's always you know guys that are right very clearly work white collar jobs but you know they've got that like their their battle vest hanging in yeah. the closet to like go to a show and to see you know Watain or you know yeah. something crazy and it's you know you you again it, there's generations of it now it's it's literally only a 50 year old genre and so you know I'm I'm 45 years old so I grew up with like thrash metal when it was really beginning we didn't know that was the beginning back then of the beginning of thrash when you heard like Anthrax Metallica all that stuff I got turned on to those by you know the first second albums. We didn't realize it was like a groundbreaking new thing, right. you know. When I say fifty years, like Sabbath is really considered the first Black Sabbath album is considered the first like metal album. That's right. And so that was fifty year old fifty years old last year. So we're fifty one years into it. But you know, when you started to get into death metal in the nineties, but then my co host on A four forty, he's ten years younger than me. So he grew up in a very different world where it was like Pantera and New Metal and all this kind of stuff that by by that point I was just like, Oh, metal sucks, all the new stuff's terrible. I'm now old enough to realize that there's always good music coming out. The people that, you know, poo on music saying, oh, you know, all the good stuff was recorded in the 60s or 70s or 80s or whatever are just not trying hard enough. We have music more accessible than it has ever been in the history of humanity. You can get on Spotify, YouTube, Pandora, and it's just so overwhelming. You you can't even... You know, you keep or I, track. You or I can write a song tonight and put it out there too, yeah. which is great. And that's, that's great. it's yeah. beautiful. Bandcamp yeah. and, and again... We, we can talk about that next yeah. time. But Bandcamp's great. great, too, because that's where yeah. the local guys are. Yeah. That's where the small guys that are unsigned Totally. Are. Well, Mike, Ed, I, awesome. This is, I, seriously, I appreciate you having me on the show. It's always fun to chat with you. Hopefully, we can do this in better times. I just appreciate you're willing to do I, I know I know this is hard stuff, but it's too important to get this out. Because yeah. I do think it seems that's like right. there's a window where some restaurants, many restaurants, can be 
sustained. I'm not going to say saved yet. We don't know. Right. It's going to be sustained. So I really, I really wanted to get this out there, but I will come back for part two. So thank well, you. Well, to that point, you know, I know I keep sucking you back in. No, it's great. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> um, we get asked a lot, you know, oh, we're so glad you guys made it out of this. Or we get that comment, I guess not asked. We get, we get the comment a lot. Uh, we're so glad that you guys made it out of this. And I tell people all the time that like, don't count your chickens before the hatch. I mean, I don't think... I think we've made it through the worst of it, and I think that we'll be fine. But, you know, uh, I also thought Rook and Black Market were fine um, at, at, at any given point. And so, I mean, literally the decision to close those restaurants came only three weeks before they closed. There was no, you know, months-long decision process. And so, you know, that's why, you know, people can need to go out and support what they within their means yep. what they can because nothing is guaranteed. And, you know... Things can change really, really quickly. Yeah. All, honestly, all it's going to take here is a uh, strain that the vaccine is ineffective against, and we're right back to where we started. So hopefully that doesn't come. Hopefully that we've learned a lot of lessons in the last, yeah. uh, you know, last 15 months, and yeah. we can be a little bit more prepared for the next time this happens, because I certainly don't believe this is the last global pandemic that we're going to see in our lifetimes. Yeah. So the real stuff, I just appreciate it. Ed Rudisell, thank you so much. Michael Huber, thank you for coming to my home. <laughs> it's a beautiful house. Beautiful. Um, okay, well, we'll talk to you later. Thank you, sir. Thank you.